Let me start by asking this question this morning. What makes someone a good leader? What makes someone a good leader? It's actually one of the most important questions that we're ever going to ask, any of us, because all of us will be under, in some way, shape, or form, leaders, right? We all have people in our lives who, who function in some kind of leadership capacity, and many of the times that, that that's true, all the time I guess that's true, but many of the times that those leaders are people we actually choose, right? Sometimes you don't have a choice, but many, many times we do, and we do that in this way. We, we make a choice to give a person a position of leadership every time we listen to them in a way that allows them to shape or influence our lives, our thoughts, our actions and behavior, our beliefs, right? You listen to somebody in a way that shapes you, you're choosing to make them a leader. So I want to ask us all to consider this morning, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? And again, it's a really important question. Remember what Jesus said. He says, we become like the people we listen to. Luke 640, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Leaders teach us, and we become like them. This, of course, was a concern for the Apostle Paul for the Corinthian church, and indeed for every church, as this letter has been given to all of us as, as the Word of God. The, the Corinthian church were, was becoming like the leaders of their day whom they were listening to. The problem, and there were lots of problems, and this whole letter is written to address problems in the church, The problem was that these leaders were teaching the people to divide into factions over disagreements according to the partisan wisdom of the world. And the church, Paul is saying here, is in great danger of splitting apart because that's affecting them too. Because they'd forgotten who they were in Christ. They were listening to the wrong voices. So the question we want to ask is, how do we determine who or what we actually should be listening to? And that's what chapter 4 addresses. So if you'll recall, you know, we've gone through the first three chapters so far. Paul has, has made just a couple of very simple points along the way. The first one is he's reminding them of who they are in Christ, right? They belong to God. This is the church of God. And he says, and, and, and you need to remember that, that because you are Christ, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart, you're, you're different, you have a, a new path from the way that the world around you is living. And he says, but I need to appeal to you to not be like the world. It's divided, it's, it's full of factions, and so are you. So he appeals to them to be of one mind, to come together in Christ. But he, he says, you know, You've, you've, you've sort of set up these different groups. You've got these different uh, cliques or partisan factions in the church where you're of, you're of this leader or you're of that leader, and, and it's, it's causing all of this breakdown. He says it's because you're spiritually immature. 
And he points them to the difference between worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom, spiritual discernment. We have the Spirit of God. We need to depend on and listen to what the Spirit tells us, not what the world is telling us. There's a very different message, right? The Spirit of the world is one of dominance. It's one of winning. It's one of us versus them. The Spirit of, of, of Christ is power through weakness, it's a message of love. It's a message of self-giving and sacrifice. It's, it's the complete opposite of what's happening around them in the world. As we get here to chapter 4, I think in some ways he's sort of summing up all of this and, and coming back to this issue of who are you listening to? Are you listening to the voices of the world? Are you listening to the Spirit? Are you listening to the right kinds of leaders who are pointing us in the right direction? So I want us to read the whole chapter here. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21, and then remind us that this is about how helping us determine who or what we should be listening to. Look down at the text. Paul says, this is how one should regard us. And by us, he's talking about himself, Apollo, Cephas, the leaders of the church. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share with this rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and, and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. 
And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? How do you determine who or what you should be listening to? I want to pull out just four, I think, key ideas that Paul is getting at here that will help us determine what kinds of voices we ought to give our attention to. Here's the first one. Listen to those who serve Christ, not themselves. Listen to those who serve Christ, not themselves. Look back again at the first two verses. He said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ stewards of the mysteries of god he says moreover it's required of stewards that they be found faithful what paul is doing here is he's setting up this contrast between the kind of leadership that he has been modeling and the kind of leadership that the culture practically values and we can be reminded of what the culture practically values by looking up just an inch or two on your page look at chapter 3 verse 19 and following It says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. So let no one boast in men. That's the wisdom of the world, right? It's it's about boasting in men. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Rather, listen to those who are serving Christ, who are stewards of his message, pointing to him. You know, I think it's interesting that our culture, and really I think probably every culture, intrinsically seems to value a fairly biblical model of leadership in theory. In theory. But rarely do we actually value or model it in practice. Let me explain what I mean by that. I did a Google search earlier this week for quotes about leadership. What is leadership? What makes good leadership? You know, the kinds of, of quotes that, that uh, you might see on one of those inspirational posters in your office hallway or at school, right? Like, what, what's, what's being said about leadership on things like that in the world? And, and here's, here's what I find. The, those ideals of good leadership usually include things like inspiring others, um, motivating them to be better, serving people by example, etc. things like that, Right? And we would say, those, those are actually good, right? But, but have you noticed that people who actually lead that way rarely seem to be in positions of leadership, right? Instead, we typically get people who sort of see themselves as influencers, who see themselves in, in a position of power, promoting their own platform and garnering their own praise, right? How many leaders are sort of the, the kind of person that just come across as being, it's, it's, it's all about them, right? And I want to ask this, why do you suppose that is? If even deep down we know that good leaders are servant leaders, if we know that, why do we so often elevate people into positions of leadership? Or, or even if we become leaders, why do we so often ourselves love to be served? So as I'm thinking about that, I think it's just one of the great evidences of the sinfulness of the human heart. 
right? I mean, we, we can just look at that and say, that, yep, that's, that's us. That's, that's the human heart. You know the old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Well, leadership is a position of power, for better or for worse, and, and there, therefore it is extremely easy for that power in the hands of a sinful person like you or me to become exceedingly self-serving. And so if we find ourselves or we, or we elevate someone into this position of, of leadership, it's easy for, for us or them to believe that in order to maintain that position of power, they need to promote their own message. That's what Paul's kind of getting at here. And he's saying, no, that's backwards thinking. That's backwards thinking because it denies the actual true source of power, which he's been talking about now for the last couple of chapters. The source of power is the weakness of God through the gospel of Christ. So he says, regard us then as servants of Christ. The, the, the word here is very much, of course, we're subordinate to him, right? The picture is actually one of, of someone who, who's like down in the, the bottom of an old ship, you know, rowing the oars, right? Subject to the, the commands of the captain. He's saying that that's, that's the way we want to be portrayed to you as we model leadership. That's what leadership is. It's recognizing I'm not the captain. Christ is the captain. And I'm, I'm being faithful to just execute his orders. I'm being faithful to call out what he has said. It's his message, not my message. And so I, I want to ask us to think about our own, our own daily existence. What, what are we listening to? And really evaluate this. How many of the people that you regularly listen to are faithfully promoting the message of Christ? Or are we like the Corinthians, doing the opposite of that, which he says more about in verses 6 through 7. Look down there. He says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For again, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, the opposite of, of looking to and submitting ourselves to the message of Christ, which again is, is a message of power through weakness, of humility, of grace, of love, of gentleness. It, it's it's this, this complete different message of being puffed up and he says that you're being puffed up because you've gone beyond what is written. Which I think is, is a clear indication as he's pointing back to the things that he's been saying throughout the first three chapters. There's a lot of quotes of Scripture. You're going beyond Scripture. You're going beyond what is written. What are these quotes that he keeps alluding back to? They, they all have to do with God's view of true power and his disdain for the wisdom and the folly of, of human thinking. When we go beyond that, it just puffs us up. It just makes us 
prideful, and therefore it splits us into factions. He says here that then you then become in favor of one another. What, what does that mean? It means you're boasting in men. And he's been saying here all along, that's, that's the whole point. We're not to boast in people. But that's what happens when the message and the messenger aren't serving Christ. And this makes us exceedingly self-righteous. What do you have that you did not receive? Why do you act as though this wisdom that you have, this, this, this message and, the, and, and whatever it produces in you, when you attach yourself to these worldly messages and it, and it makes you feel a certain way or it gives you a certain status or it gives you a certain sense of, of superiority or rightness versus other people's wrongness, how silly is that? What do you really have that you didn't receive? Why would you be so puffed up as to assume that, that you've somehow discovered or produced wisdom? The message of Christ reminds us that all true wisdom comes from God. If you think you have something beyond that, you're self-deceived. And you've become exceedingly self-righteous. So if we're going to avoid the factions that divide and break down not only society, but, but also the church, we have to listen to those who demonstrate real leadership. Real leadership, which is always points to the supremacy of Christ. It always faithfully serves Jesus as a steward of his message, of his mystery, as God's messenger, it's his message, not mine, not yours. So that's the first thing he says here, right? The second thing is this. Listen to those who seek to please God and not other people. Listen to those who seek to please God, not others. Look back at verse 3. He says, but with me, it's, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. And therefore, again, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Notice that uh, Paul is not saying here that we can never make judgments or hold people accountable. And I, I say that because we're going to see this next week. When we get to chapter 5, he's actually going to call the church to make some judgments about sinful behavior that's happening in the church. So that, that's not the kind of judgment that he's talking about here. But what he's, what he's doing is he's talking about evaluating our motives and who it is that we're seeking to please. Do you remember last week I talked about the Corinthian culture as being a meritocracy? Uh, that, that, that pleasing other people was the way to gain cultural currency, right? I had to earn your favor. I had to earn your accolade and your praise. And so my goal was to please you, right? It was to gain a crowd, to gain a following, to gain supporters, to get, you know, in more modern vernacular, more likes, Right? That, that's kind of what, what it was all about. And, and people would like you, they were pleased with displays of power. 
according to the way that culture defined power. And so why is Paul here saying, I'm not really that interested in the judgments that that you would make about me or that any human court would make about me? Why was he being judged? Well, the reason he was being judged is because Paul was unimpressive. He wasn't like the orators in in the town square, right? He wasn't eloquent in his speech. He wasn't, you know, apparently he wasn't, you know, a particularly great looking guy or any of the things that we might value in culture. He just wasn't impressive. And therefore, he was being judged as weak. He was being judged as someone not really worth listening to. And that, frankly, is kind of relatable. We love to attach ourselves to winning people and winning messages, right? We, we love to attach ourselves to those who come across as being um, dominant. But Paul's saying, no, I, I don't have any concern over that kind of human evaluation or, or that being the source of my sense of worth. God alone, because it's his message, it's his wisdom, God alone will be the judge of who is righteous. God alone will be the judge of who is faithful. This idea of being judgmental takes the position then of of God. And Paul's saying that's worldly wisdom. That's buying right back into the the dominant sort of winning culture of foolish worldly wisdom, not the weakness of the cross. So again, I want to ask us to consider this. How about us? Do the people that you listen to regularly lead you to be judgmental? We certainly live in a very judgmental culture. Do the people you listen to lead you to be judgmental? Paul says, no, listen to those who seek to please God, not man. Thirdly, these are all related, of course. Listen to those who promote cruciform weakness, not worldly power. We've been talking about this already, but he's going to get a little bit more in depth here. Listen to those who promote cruciform weakness, not worldly power. Before I dive into the verses here, 8 through 13, where he really lays this out, I want to point you back to verse 6, because there's something pretty enlightening here. Look back at verse 6. He says, I've applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. What does that mean? What things is he talking about? Well, for the first three chapters, he's been talking about these factions, right? And he's been saying, you've, you've divided up. Some of you say, I'm of Paul. Some of you say, I'm of Apollos. Some of you say, I'm of Cephas, which is Peter. Some of you say, I'm of Christ, right? So he's been, he's been sort of making this charge that, that the factions that you've divided into in the church, you've chosen certain leadership in the church, and he's used himself as an example. He's used Apollos as an example. He says here, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. I think what he's saying here is, I've used myself as an example talking about these factions, but the reality is, 
it's not really me or Apollos that you guys have been following. I think what he's doing here is something that is just kind of rhetorically wise. And it's very similar to what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember there, after David sins by, uh, you know, by sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, and, and Nathan comes to him, and Nathan tells David this story about a rich man and a poor man, this rich man who has all, these, all this livestock, this poor man has this one little lamb, and when the poor man comes to the rich man, uh, the rich man receives him in for dinner, and instead of taking one of his livestock and, and cutting it up and serving that for dinner, he takes the poor man's own only little lamb that, that he loves like a daughter, and he, he serves that for dinner. And, and when Nathan tells this story to David, David's like, what? Right? Like, that guy, that guy needs to be punished. This is an outrageous. And then Nathan says, <clears throat> actually, that man is you. Right? That, that's kind of, I think, what Paul's doing here. He said, look, I've been talking about Apollos and me, but the reality is the factions that you guys are, are, are joining up with, it's not really me. It's not really Apollos. He's not named them, but it, you know, it's like, it, it'd be like him saying, it's actually Bob, and it's actually Julie, right? It's like, these are the people that you've, you've joined up under. And I think the wisdom in that is that if he were to come out and say that up front, he'd run the risk of, of sort of alienating all the people in those factions to say, I'm not listening to this anymore. It'd be sort of like if I were to come in this morning and say, I have a word of rebuke for all of you who are registered as Republicans. I have a word of rebuke for all of you who are registered as Democrats this morning. Immediately, half of you would be like, oh, I'm not listening to this, right? And I think that's kind of what he's trying to do. So I I want you to, to catch that because it's important to help us understand, like, the, the tendency for us to be so enmeshed with these factions and these leaders and shut out any challenge to that is so strong. And, and I think Paul recognizes that, and now he's going he's gonna to kind of dip a little bit more into it and press a little bit deeper. Listen to verses 8 through 13 again. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Oh, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, I I want you to notice that these verses are dripping with sarcasm. Paul is, is sort of getting a little cheeky here with them. And he's saying, you are, you are, you've been divided into these factions, you've been pursuing worldly wisdom, and look what you've become. You really are impressive people. You really are rich. You really are kings. Wink, wink, right? I think what he's trying to help them understand is how worldly wisdom creates messed up worldly churches and messed up worldly believers. When we think that because we've attached ourselves to an outside message, that that has now elevated us to a status of superiority against other people. It allows really dangerous 
um, elements to enter into the life of a church that on the surface might appear godly, they might appear biblical, but in reality they are just breeding self-righteousness. Let me give you a couple of examples, because I think this is exactly what he's doing here when he talks about these, these sort of lofty um, uh, labels that, that sort of promote this idea of, of success. Um, things like a prosperity gospel can become very deeply entrenched in a church, right? If the, if the message of the world, if the world's wisdom is about success and about gain and about winning and we can use Scripture and, and, and create this environment where, where that's what God really wants for us too, right? God wants us to be healthy and wealthy and happy. Then all of a sudden, something like a prosperity gospel can come in, and it can not only infect us with wrong thinking, but it can also create factions because we can now judge, because you aren't that successful, you must not be very godly. And because this person over here is super successful, they must be really spiritual, right? Or we might see something like abusive churches. And we are seeing this all over the place. Abusive leadership in churches, right? Where again, if the message is is one of polish and one of pizzazz and one of impressiveness, then some some leader might come in who has all of the the qualities of, of a TV star, and all of the ability to speak eloquently, who has no desire at all to be a servant of Christ, but rather very much a servant of themselves, to gain power, to garnish power, and therefore then to exert that power on the congregation in abusive ways. Of course, we can see politically partisan churches where either a church is divided that way or churches divide into different camps where everybody at this church is Republican. Everybody at this church is a Democrat. Everybody here is progressive. Everybody here is conservative, right? And we, we, we just see these like splits. We can see it in churches that, that sort of become doctrine snobs. We have the right doctrine and you don't. So we're going to spend most of our time not just promoting our, our own rightness and doctrine, but criticizing all the people who don't share the same doctrine that we share. And that becomes the, sort of the, ten, the, the tenor of the church. That becomes the, the air. We see that with the social gospel, right? Where, you know, everything becomes about a social issue, Everything steers towards that. Everything, everything, everything. And we can say then, we're, because we, are, we have the mind of God and caring for the poor and the, and the weak and the marginalized, that, then, then we are therefore better than all of the rest of the churches who aren't giving the same attention that we are to the issues. We see it with culture warrior mentality. Right? Us versus them. It's, it's all culture war. Everything is a battle. And therefore, we can feel really high and mighty about ourselves. See, all, all of these things breed self-righteousness. All of them breed self-righteousness. All of them create this sort of us versus them mentality, this winning versus losing 
mentality. And I, I want us to really be challenged by this because it's, this is so easy to fall into. If the messages that we listen to appeal to us because they promote favor or power or position or possessions in this world, listen, we're doing it wrong. If the message we listen to appeal to us because they promote that kind of worldly wisdom, we are doing it wrong. We're building our houses on sand. Now, this is an important point. Does that mean there aren't things that I just talked about, like, you know, uh, leadership and, 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 and doctrine and social issues and all those things? Does that mean that, that, that we, we don't value any of that? No. It doesn't mean that. This is so important, though. And I think this is, this is, this is where maturity happens for us, church. So I, I really pray that we get this. There's nothing in Scripture that condemns earthly possessions. There's nothing in Scripture that would say to us that authority doesn't matter. In fact, it would say authority does matter. Sound doctrine matter. Social issues and justice are at the very heart of God. All right? So those things matter. But Paul's point is that the way that we approach these things will be vastly different than the world. Because the way that the world approaches these things is, is always about a platform that promotes self-righteousness and power struggle. We, on the other hand, can approach the world that we live in with a very different wisdom, a wisdom of Christ that says, no, the answer to these issues is found in a cruciform love and a self-sacrifice that models Christ's power to overcome the dominions and the powers and the authority of the world. You know, I want to I show you this because it, it's... Um, it's sad to me how, how much the church has forgotten that. And I want to put up this little image. Do you guys have that image back there of that, that kind of, yeah. All right, so I blacked out the name and the face of this person. But this person is a, a very well-known leadership guru that is very often um, speaking to the church, very often quoted by the church, and, in fact, I found this image this week on the Twitter feed of a denominational leader in the church, all right? You're not growing if you're still excited about what you did five years ago. Now, from an organizational standpoint, I would say, okay, that makes sense, right? But if, if that's the message that we're promoting as a church, as the church, we're not growing if we're still excited about what we did five years ago. In other words, innovate, innovate, market, right? Target. What's, going, what's the next thing? Don't worry about the past thing. I think Paul would, would say to that, if it was being sold to the church, no. You're not growing if you're not excited about what God did five years ago. 10, 20, 
2,000 years ago. In other words, the problem isn't that we're not innovative enough. The problem isn't that we're not cutting edge enough. The problem is we've forgotten the gospel that God has already accomplished. You want to grow? Go back to the foundation. Go back to his message. Remember the gospel. You don't move on from the grace of God. You don't move on from power through weakness. And the message of the cross is power through weakness. Are we listening to the voices that remind us of that? Both in word and in deed. Finally this. Listen to those who care about you, not just talk at you. Verse 14, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. As my beloved children, you have countless guides in Christ. You don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then, be imitators of me. Here's, a, here's a, I think, a helpful concern for Paul. When he says here, you have countless guides in Christ, the, when the original language in Greek, it literally says this, you have 10,000 guides in Christ. It's hyperbole, right? You have thousands of voices that you're listening to, thousands of influences in your lives. And I, I could say, if, boy, if you could say that, even, even if it's hyperbole, if you could say that about first century first century Corinthians, how much more could you say that about 21st century Americans, right? Because it wouldn't be hyperbole at that point. It would be literal. You have thousands of voices that you're constantly listening to. There's thousands of guides. You have, you have TV channels and radio stations and social media platforms and internet news sites and just the, the messages are coming and coming and coming and coming. Thousands of them. But you don't have many fathers. What's the difference between a father and a talking head? Here's the difference. Relationship. Relationship. And in that relationship, then, the ability to know you, to love you, to correct you, to disciple you in Christian maturity, right? Listen, we can all learn things. We all have learned things from those thousands of voices and guides that constantly are in our ear and in front of our eyeballs. But I want to ask you this. How often have you actually been discipled by a Facebook post? By a YouTube video? Right? You can learn some good things. We can, we can, I think, be edified to some degree by those things. But can you be discipled? Can you, can you easily tune out the messages that you don't really feel like hearing and then tune more into the ones that you do that appeal to your, your senses, that appeal to your heart? <laughs> and I don't mean that in a good way, right? A father can say to you, no, son, no, daughter. Um, you're, you're, you're off base here. 
And I love that Paul's saying, I'm not saying these things to make you ashamed. I mean, he's, he's just been pretty sarcastic. He's, he's made these, you know, it's tough love, right? You, you think this much of yourself. This is foolishness. But he's like, I'm not, I'm not shaming you. I'm trying to love you. I love you. I want you to, I want you to know. I want you to grow in Christ. And it's such an important thing. How often are we listening to those who actually have a Christ-like servant's heart seeking to please God, not other people, right? Who are willing then to engage with us relationally so that they can actually help us by knowing us and loving us and correcting us and leading us. Who Who are we listening to? Why is that so important? For us. Because I've said as I've said over and over again and I want to keep I want to keep bringing this home. The church is in such danger of splitting. We're in such danger not not just of of splitting as churches but in, in, in seeing individual believers splitting away from the faith, to seeing our children deny, walk away from the faith because what they're seeing, what we see so often in the church is not the message of Christ, but the messages of the world that are just constantly vying to redirect our thinking about what power really is what success really is, what winning really is. It has nothing to do with the cruciform weakness of the gospel. It has everything to do with the insidious foolishness of the world. And I, and I do fear that right now, in the season that we're in, we're more in jeopardy of that than, than most, most times. Because the, the rhetoric is so loud. So I want to encourage you, really evaluate who you're listening to this week. Recognize that if you're going to listen to voices that will point you to Christ and are uh, are able to know you relationally, that that you've got a lot of work to do in in building more relationships within the, the church, within the local body, right? That's an important starting place. I want to encourage you, if you haven't come on Tuesday nights, come. We're talking about these issues. What does it mean to to have a gentle spirit like Christ in an age of us versus them rhetoric? If you can't come, grab the book, read the book along with us. Just we, We have work to do as the church because it's so important. It's not just important for us and our unity and our maturity. It's important for the world to see some outpost that points to God. And that's exactly what this kind of leadership does. It points to Christ.